Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 195 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be celebrating the launch of John Joseph Adams' books, a new fantasy and science fiction imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and also the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Wastelands 2, Operation Arcana, and The End Has Come. And as you might guess, he's also the editor of John Joseph Adams' books. So, John, welcome back. Uh, Good to be here, as always. And also joining us today is Bruce Nichols. He's a senior vice president and publisher at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt's trade division, where for the past seven years he's overseen the adult publishing program. Prior to that, he was a vice president and publisher of the Collins imprint at HarperCollins, and he also spent many years as a nonfiction editor at Simon & Schuster. So, Bruce, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Okay, so I'll start off with Bruce, and have you just tell us a bit about how you got started in book publishing? Well, that goes back um, many years, which will reveal my age. But um, when I graduated college in the mid-1980s, I had no idea what to do with myself. So I thought I would get a temporary job in Boston um, at uh, Little Brown, where they had a college division. And I really liked political science and history, and they had some great um, textbooks for that. And so I thought that was just something to figure out what I was going to do. And that was my last major career decision. Um, Since then, after being in textbooks for a few years, I, uh, which was a very good education in publishing, but in the long run, you're publishing books that are 95% just like each other and only 5% different. I transitioned over to uh, the Free Press at Simon & Schuster, which was a serious nonfiction imprint and um, have been doing that ever since. Well, so what brought you to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt? Well, um, when I was at HarperCollins, it was to help launch a new division um, using the Collins name, which is a very long-standing British publisher, um, and that name is still very much used by HarperCollins in the UK. They had never really used the name here. Um, when Rupert Murdoch bought Harper and Rowe, um, formerly Harper Brothers, he, he was also buying Collins in the UK, so that's where HarperCollins as a name came from, but uh, they decided in 2006 to greatly expand it in the U.S. and publish a, make an entire division with multiple imprints, publishing a wide, wide range of nonfiction. Um, so I went there and I hired a bunch of editors and we signed a lot of books, but then the 2008 recession hit and every publisher had to make lots of cutbacks. And what Harper decided to do was just close down the division entirely. Um, so I still had a job, but uh, I no longer had the program that I was there to build. So Houghton, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which had gone through its own painful merger and its own painful financial distress, was emerging from that and looking for someone to join them and lead the adult side of the trade division. So it was a great opportunity that came at the right time. Yeah. And so have you worked on any fantasy and science fiction books? Uh, well, I, as an editor, had only edited nonfiction. This is you know, going back to before I was at HarperCollins. Um, as a publisher, we uh, at HarperCollins, it was nonfiction, but I've been here seven years, and, and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt has a very long and storied list uh, of fiction that includes some 
very famous names in science fiction and fantasy, such as Tolkien, for one, and um, Dennis Lalem, and uh, Lois Lowry, and uh, we took over the Philip K. Dick catalog um, some years ago. Um, so we've been publishing uh, in science fiction and fantasy, but only very selectively, not with any one editor who was completely immersed in it. And um, meanwhile, we'd also been watching the genre it's really more than one genre as you know but but that uh, field become very mainstream and um so we had the new best american uh science fiction fantasy that john is the series editor for as our latest new volume in the best american series um and coming out of that it the sort of light bulb went off that even though john's on the west coast and even though john has lots of things to do besides just edit long form fiction he's the perfect editor at large to help us. So um, we're thrilled to have announced this uh, just last year and be just now signing up some of the first books. Yeah, yeah. Well, so John's talked on the show before about how the best American science fiction and fantasy came about from his perspective. But I was just curious about your perspective as a publisher. How did you first connect with him and how did the project come about? Uh, well, just by way of context, the, the best American series is very, very, very old. It, it was Short Stories actually uh, launched it, and it was celebrated its 100th anniversary uh, last year. Um, over the years, this series has expanded into a number of other areas, and uh, essays being the next oldest, but we you know, have travel, and we have mysteries, and we have uh, sports. Um, and uh, we added infographics as the most recent before John's volume um, about four years ago. Um, and every time we add one, it doesn't always work. We tried recipes, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> but um, it it's an interesting experiment each time. And when it works, it's great for the entire series. Infographics has worked very nicely. Um, John actually, uh, this proposal came from John and an agent. Um, to us. And uh, so I, I wish we had thought of it ourselves, but uh, <laughs> he did. And, uh, and as soon as we saw the proposal, we thought, of course, because, you know, it's no longer the case that the world is split between, you know, sort of pulp ghetto and the literary world. Um, the, the entire genre or collection of genres has gone so mainstream and some absolutely terrific writers are, um, contributing to it more than ever before. So they should be gathered and canonized, at least for their for their one year. I can't claim that each of these volumes lasts for a century itself. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was a, a very obvious thing to do. And it was in the first volume, which was uh, last year, has done very nicely. Oh, nice. I mean, so, John, we had you on the show when the book launched. I was just curious, is anything, are there any updates since the launch with Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy? Anything else that you can tell us? Uh, well, since I was on the show, we uh, we finally did announce publicly the guest editor for Volume 2, which uh, is Karen Joy Fowler. Um, and uh, I actually recently just uh, finalized the selections with her. So, you know, I know what the, the final table of contents for Volume 2 looks like. That'll be out in October 2016, so this year, um, you know, collecting the best of 2015. Um, the table of contents is still secret, and, and all, everything about the, you know, the... the um, you know, the notable story list uh, and everything that's all still confidential. But um, but Karen and I have finalized the selections and um, uh, the rights department will be working on, uh, you know, getting getting the permissions for everything. And uh, um, but 
Uh, yeah, but I mean, so that's the biggest development. Uh, we haven't um, lined up anything beyond um, beyond this volume yet um, in, in terms of guest editors and whatnot. Um, but uh, but everything's uh, proceeding along well. I mean, like Bruce said, the first volume did has done very well, and um, and I'm really excited about volume two in terms of like the. Uh, you know, just in quality level. Like, uh, I, I mean, I was really, you know, I, I love volume one and, and it was great doing it for the first time. And then, um, doing it the second time, I'm really pleased that, um, you know, I ended up with a, a list of stories that, uh, felt like it was on par with that first volume, at least. And, and, uh, um, I, and I'm really happy with the final selections as well. So, yeah. I mean, have there been any reviews or responses to the book that stick out in your mind? Uh, I mean, a lot of people uh, seem to like really think it was um, really nailed it. Like, uh, uh, and I mean, Adam Troy Castro sticks out in my mind. Uh, he's actually in the first volume, so he, you know, can be seen as somewhat uh, um, biased towards it. But uh, he talked about it on Facebook a couple times um, and just like raved about it in such a way that like it kind of made me teary eyed to even like look at his what he was saying. Um, uh, you know. We got some nice press, like Entertainment Weekly um, uh, did a little interview with me about it, and uh, and, and they ran uh, Joe Hill's forward, um, or his introduction, rather. I wrote the forward. I, I can never keep the introduction and forward <laughs> straight. Like, you know, what, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, but um, uh, they ra- they ran the text of that so that, you know, you can read that online. And actually, if anybody still hasn't gotten to check that out, definitely go check that out. Like, if you go to the Best American website, you know, on my website, um, you can find a link to it, but, uh, cause Joe's introduction is just like such a wonderful love letter to the genre that like, I just encourage everyone to go read it. Um, but, uh, but entertainment weekly did the little interview with me. So that was really cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, generally it's, it seems to be getting good reviews. I mean, on Amazon, it's like, it's kind of a mixed bag because hmm. you get a bunch of people who don't really understand what they're talking about reviewing things, but, uh, so it goes. Um, I, I was actually surprised to see, um, how many people sort of, um, we're looking at the table of contents and like they have, they have this very weirdly uh, restricted definition of what science fiction or fantasy is. Um, and they think they know what one or the other is looking at, at a story. And it's like, well, no, you're just wrong. Okay. It's a, <laughs> so it's like, I, I, I mean, you know, come on, like anonymous internet commenter, who knows more about this? You or me? I mean, I'm like, you know, I've devoted my life to this. I'm, I'm a professional, you know, like I, it is science fiction. Believe me, trust me. Um, but, but I mean, like they're like reading the stories and like, because it doesn't fit like their particular definition of like what they think science fiction is, they're labeling it fantasy and says like, Oh, most of this book's fantasy. It's like, well, actually it's like 50, 50 science fiction uh, and fantasy. So, um, and I very deliberately did that because, um, you know, if both genres are going to be in the title, I feel like they should be equally represented in the book. Well, John, when you were talking about the Adam Troy Castro review, bringing a tear to your eye, that was making me think of how you said that when you wrote the proposal for this book, that oh, yeah. uh, your, your wife kind of got teared up because she thought it was so moving. Yeah. I was just kind of curious. And you said it was the best book proposal you thought you'd ever written. I was just curious, Bruce, did the book proposal for this stand <laughs> out in your mind as a particularly exceptional uh, example of the book proposal form? <laughs> well, the problem with that question is that book proposals come in every imaginable uh, shape and size. So uh, depending upon what kind of book is being proposed, um, so it, that's like comparing apples and oranges to say the <laughs> best. But um, what was uh, what made it a really easy discussion and decision at our end was um, – you know, the proof of concept, he didn't, John didn't need to establish. I mean, the, the, just the idea, everyone's like, well, of course we should be doing this. So 
that is usually the hard part of a nonfiction or or anthology fiction proposal. Um, then you know, is John the right guy to do it? The proposal w- was incredibly convincing. I mean, he's he knows more about short fiction in this world uh, than anyone I know, and. Um, We've had long experience with series editors for the other volumes and, you know, with uh, short stories, um, which is a similar challenge. You know, there are a large number of them published in a lot of small places and then a small number published in some very big places like The New Yorker. And for one person to really be on top of everything um, that he or she can narrow it down to the semifinals uh, before the guest editor comes in. That's the hard part, but uh, it's just finding the person that has that range and has the taste. And uh, John's proposal was very convincing that uh, he absolutely did. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you mentioned that now you guys are going to be doing a new imprint with John, this John Joseph Adams books. Could you just talk a bit about why why does the publisher have different imprints and why did you decide to go with a special imprint for this selection of books? Sure. Um, an imprint can mean multiple different things um, uh, as well. So um, within the Random House, Penguin Random House Empire, there's a whole ton of imprints um, that are very large operations and have their names on the spine like Crown instead of Knopf, what have you. Um, but in this case, and we have this with two other editors here, um, this is a name imprint where uh, on the outside is this Hope Nothing Harcourt, but on the title page it says uh, a John Joseph Adams book. And when the feed goes out to Amazon or any other online seller, um, or it's listed in any other place, it will say uh, John Joseph Adams books slash John Nuffin Harcourt. Um, the value of having a, a, a single editor name imprint like that is when that editor has uh, the visibility in uh, in at least a couple of different communities. It doesn't have to be someone who's known to the average reader walking in off the street into the bookstore. But if it's very meaningful to authors and to agents for starters, and then also um, to reviewers, gatekeepers, et cetera, um, it's a great way for a publisher to, you know, lift a list and give a list an identity. And it's also a great way to attract somebody as talented as John to say, you know, you're not just going to be behind the scenes quietly. You're going to, your name is going to be associated with these books. So um, especially since, you know, though we'd been publishing selectively, as I mentioned, uh, we were not a big player in this space, and we don't want to be publishing 50 to 100 books a year. We want this to be a highly curated list that one editor with great taste would do, which usually, you know, might mean up to 10 or 12 books per year. And once it's fully going, um, having his name as a stamp and imprimatur is is just as valuable to us as it is to him. And I mean, there is a tradition in science fiction of imprints being named after particular editors. I mean, Del Rey named after Lester Del Rey and Da named after Donald A. Walheim are two examples that spring to mind for me. Yeah, although, uh, especially in the Del Rey case, that became a much, much larger, you know, essentially entire company. I mean, it's part of a, itself part of a larger thing. But um, that, I mean, that's like saying, um, you know, Harper Brothers originally uh, <laughs> became the name of a company. Um, so if down the road this becomes so successful and so huge that um, John is retired and we've got an entire building full of people doing JJA books, I'd be happy. I mean, I'm, <laughs> but, sure, I'm sure that'll happen. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I mean, it's kind of funny for me to even have this uh, imprint with my name on it because it's like it. I, I kind of feel like I have to apologize to people in advance or, or tell them it's like, well, no, it wasn't my idea. You know, it's like <laughs> HMH's idea. Like, I because it feels like very egotistical to be like, oh, you're like, I'm gonna, yeah, it's gonna name this imprint after me. Like, you know, um, but uh, one of the nice things about um, having the imprint named after me as opposed to having like a science fiction or fantasy, um, you know, sort of name like uh, like Saga or um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, like Orbit, uh, like one of those um, is that it gives us some flexibility in, in our publishing uh, that um, if we if we want to publish something that's on the periphery of genre as opposed to something more firmly right in genre, it, it, it makes it a little easier, um, I think, for the marketing of it so that. Uh, you know, because like a lot of booksellers, it's like they say they see Orbit or they see Saga, they know, oh, well, that just goes obviously in the science fiction section. Whereas um, some of the books that we're going to be looking at are going to be more on the periphery, and so maybe are going to be things that, while obviously genre uh, to you know to us people who like live and breathe the genre um, to the to like you know in mainstream in, into bookstores and stuff in the mainstream, uh, those books could potentially just be in the regular fiction section because they have that kind of crossover uh, appeal. Um, so you know, I think that. Uh, having that name not be tied directly to science fiction in that way with the name um, sort of makes that a little bit easier. Well, that's what I was going to ask, John, is like, are JJA books books going to have any particular uh, like slant or like image, or is it just going to be the best fantasy and science fiction books? And even maybe like you're saying a little beyond that, that you can possibly find. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, just that's I'm just going to be shooting for trying to find the best. Um, you know, uh, I think anybody who's familiar with my work as a short fiction editor will probably have some idea of what what the line will look like. Um, you know, I tend to be attracted to sort of accessible science fiction and fantasy um, that, uh, you know, skews toward the literary side of things. Um, you know, so I'm you know, I'm really big on, on, you know, wonderful prose and, and, and that kind of, uh, you know, nuanced sort of storytelling that you, that you find on the literary side of things, but with, uh, you know, with, with real science fiction fantasy elements to it. Right. I mean, could you say, Bruce, a little bit more about what are some of the challenges or practical considerations in launching a new imprint like this? And do you have any particular strategies to address those? Uh, the, I mean, the challenges of publishing fiction period are, are enormous. Um, it's, uh, you know, getting publicity for one of them is much harder than with, you know, high profile nonfiction. Um, uh, and distribution isn't what it used to be. Um, so on the one hand, the challenges are, are sort of pretty straightforward and something we face every day with, with the fiction we're already publishing. Um, what's great about science fiction and fantasy is that it is a tight community. There are a number of websites and other places that the community gathers and, and talks with itself and, and each other and hears about things. Um, and I think uh, one of the challenges that a larger, more straight genre program would have in retailing, we, we don't have because if we're walking into Barnes and Noble or whoever and talking about one of John's books, it's in the same conversation that we're talking about the rest of our fiction list, which is small and tightly curated, but has, you know, some very big names on it and has some bestsellers every year. So um, I think we're going to have, we're going to get more attention for the first few books, especially um, because it's a new thing. And, uh, and then on the sales side, our sales force is, is very hungry for this. So 
I, I think, you know, going back to the imprint question, at some houses, when they have the chance to hire one prominent person, um, they want to set up a name for the imprint and they you know, have a logo and, and come up with some kind of identifying name. The, the problem with imprint names for the general public is they really don't pay attention. I mean, if, if you're reading a great novel published by Random House or a great novel published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt or whoever, you know, you, you, I hope you know who the author is and I hope, hope you know what the title is, but most people couldn't tell you who the publisher is. And I, I'm the same when I'm reading other people's books. So it's, um, our challenge is with the gatekeepers. Um, our challenge is getting review attention. Our challenge is getting um, publicity and having marketing, um, you know, advertising in the right places, et cetera. Um, it's not so much, you know, we've got to establish this thing with the rest of the world. I mean, if we establish it with the gatekeepers, the rest of the world will come to it. So um, the first three titles are Hugh Howey, um, and they're all just coming out now, and um, they were all previously published so it's a you know it, it's a combination of a soft start because we're not getting new attention for brand new releases but it's also a, a great start because he's such an established figure and the um all three of the books already had an audience one of them beacon 23 is newer than the others but um so we're sort of just taking over that we're reaching out to booksellers um we're not trying to get new review attention it's that you can't do that after the fact but um but it's establishing a sales track which with our accounts is very very helpful and um so when we are ready to announce the first new books um which won't be until the coming out until next year um part of our task in terms of having booksellers know what we're doing is already done uh so the real challenge there will be publicity and marketing right i mean you mentioned that most Ordinary readers don't really pay much attention to who the publisher is. And something John and I have talked about in the past is that most ordinary readers probably don't pay much attention to who the editor is for novels. Um, but And we've talked about maybe should that change. But I mean, John, do you think that uh, people should be paying more attention to who's editing the novels that they read? Uh, I don't know that people need to pay more attention per se, but I, I mean, because the thing is, most uh, on most books, it's completely impossible to figure it out. Or, I mean, if not impossible, very difficult and more difficult than uh, than you would expect a, a, a regular reader to just uh, to to figure it out. Um, but I mean, like, I think in a case like this where uh, I have uh, an established readership who trusts my name from the short fiction field and they know my name from anthologies and all that kind of thing, um, I think that's very valuable. And there's no reason that every every novel editor couldn't have that same, build that same sort of brand for themselves. Because the thing is, it's like, I, I mean, what I always say is that the most important thing that an editor is going to do, at least from my point of view, is is bring that that curation to the endeavor. Um, it's like, sure, you know, there's editors who are better at working with authors to improve the book that already exists and make it into the best thing it can be. And, and every, and every, you know, sort of editor has to, or I mean, most editors anyway, have to do that uh, with, with their authors. But um, the thing that's, that I think is the hardest thing to do is to, to, you know, really curate a list. And, um, you know, uh, personally, like if I read a book that I think is great, wouldn't it just be better for me if I knew who 
was the person that made the decision to buy that book from for the publisher so that I could say like, oh, hey, that that was a really smart decision. I really like that. What else did that person think was also good? Because I mean that I mean that's what like my whole life is about is about reading great things and then telling everybody about them basically. Um, and so uh, like you know for instance you know like when I'm when I'm doing it in the short form it's like I, I'm I'm reading everything so that you only have to read the you know, the few really good ones. Um, like when I do a reprint anthology or something, it's like I, when I did, when I edited Wastelands, my first anthology, it's like, it's like I read thousands of post-apocalyptic stories so that you only had to read the best 20, you know, cause it's like, you probably don't want to read thousands and thousands of stories. You know, you want to read whatever the best ones are. And, and so, um, you know, I think if uh, if novel editors were just more visible, um, that would make it a lot easier for people to, to find, um, uh, to find books that, for them to love because you know like especially at a place like uh, like Tor Orbit who is publishing so many books in the genre it's like the the imprint itself can only do so much because like you you just can't read them all it's just there's so many i mean like if you exclusively read one publisher maybe you could you know you could keep up with them but um but they publish so many books in any given year it makes it really difficult and so like if they actually just made it a little bit easier to figure out like well who are the people who are the you know editors actually in charge of of getting those books published then um yeah i think that would make it easier for readers so did you guys ever talk about any way to maybe visually tie these books together and make it clear that they're all the John Justice Adams books? I'm thinking of like the Galant line had all the yellow covers for the mm. books or like the SF Masterwork series has the number things. And I'm a big sucker for that. If you put numbers on these <laughs> things, I'll probably buy them all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I jump in on that I, um, and, and also responding to John's uh, last comments. When I'm an editor myself on a book, um, I want to do everything I can to make the author and his book be the best it can be. And then I want to get the heck out of the way. And I want the reader to connect directly with um, the author. Um, there are insiders uh, and, and sort of deep insiders in any area, whether it's um, science fiction, fantasy, or, or certain kinds of nonfiction or what have you, who will get to know all kinds of things about um, the publisher and maybe even the editor. But um, but I think it would be tricky to your question um, to have a serious look to these books because they're going to be very different from one another in some cases. And um, the example of of the first three, two of by Hugh Howie, two of them are volumes two and three in the Silo series, Falling Wool, and so and they already existed in self-published form uh, and we just simply tweaked those looks but we need that series uh, to have a consistent look and be right for that series so um, I don't know on the outside in the art that it would be the right thing to do to try to make every other book somehow reflect it I do think the value of John's name um, coming at people on the pedal page coming at people when they see it on online listings etc um, it, it will, it's much more visible than, of course, the average book by the average editor whose name is not attached, um, and, and is helpful. Um, I, but I think there will be probably series being coming out of this, um, that will have other, you know, parallel to the silo series by other authors, and they'll all need their own correct series of looks. So I, I don't know that we could easily make them visually the same. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, John, that you got mentioned on WNYC's On the Media program. Did you see that? 
Uh, I don't know if I did see that. Uh, the, I forgot the publicist actually emailed me about something that was, um, no, there was something on NPR and then I never followed up with her to, to get the link. Cause it was like, it was like airing right then or something. Um, but no, so what's the, what's the WNYC thing? I mean, this might be the same thing, but if you check out their on the media podcast, they had a whole episode about print is back basically was the theme. And they mentioned, uh, you and Joe Monty's a lot oh. new lines. Uh, cool. So that was pretty cool. Although they refer to you as the longtime editor of the best American science fiction and fantasy, <laughs> which I don't know if that's completely accurate. It seems like only yesterday, John, that you yeah. started that. Started <laughs> right. That. I am uh, a longtime editor, I suppose, but not <laughs> of that particular series. Yeah. Still new. Um, did the announcement, I don't know, did you, did you see other uh, news about the announcement? Did it get a big response from people? Uh, I mean, uh, a lot of people were definitely excited about it. it I, I didn't see like a, a huge uh, amount of media attention, but I did do a couple of interviews about it. Like, um, uh, there's this guy, Porter Anderson. Um, he, uh, recently, uh, did a profile on me and, uh, that just got published recently. Um, and, uh, I think it's called publishing perspectives is where it, where it was. Um, and, uh, and, and there was a couple other places that it, uh, ended up showing up, but, uh, generally, generally, uh, the response I got was more sort of just the community being like flipping out that, that this was <laughs> happening. So there was one funny thing from the community and I can't remember where it was, but John, you probably will. That said, um, John, Joseph Adams wants to see bionic because in addition to everything else he's doing, now he's doing this. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? I forget who that yeah. was. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I joked when, uh, when I announced it myself, you know, it's like that I'll have to give up certain things in order to do this, probably sleep, you know? So, <laughs> um, yeah, and actually, I, I was just doing an interview with my uh, college alumni magazine, and they were um, they were asking. And one of the questions they had, which I think was just sort of a stock question that they ask a lot of people, is like, "Well, what would your superpower be?" And I gave the most boring answers, but I mean, honestly, it's like I was like, "Well, I'd really like to be able to read faster, or like maybe not not have to sleep." Uh, and, I was, and I acknowledge that that would be I, I would have the most boring comic ever if if there was a comic made about it. But um, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's honestly the superpower I would like, you know. Uh, well, I mean, Bruce, you know, like th like there are all these, it seems like now, mainstream publishing houses moving more into fantasy and science fiction. Could you just talk about that as a phenomenon? What kind of what's your take on that? Oh, it's absolutely true. And and um, I, I remember not that many years ago having serious conversations with, you know, literary scouts for film studios and other people saying, OK, when is the dystopian thing going to be over? <laughs> and And I wonder if that happened in fantasy sometime uh, in the past. I don't know, but um, I think so many authors of, you know, all different backgrounds and interests have just stopped thinking of this as a category that, you know, is in its own ghetto and, and all kinds of authors who write all kinds of books are, you know, among the things that are trying out are either have something speculative or, you know, some kind of fantasy or what have you. And, um, and so it's natural that mainstream editors, uh, at mainstream imprints would see some great writing that happens to be one of those things and publish it. Um, which is why we've ended up with a small amount. But, um, I do think that having someone like John who is in the community makes a big difference because, um, there are writers that could cross over and break out and become very mainstream. Um, and uh, if they only ever get published in sort of traditional science fiction houses, mm -hmm. um, that won't happen or it's unlikely to happen. So, um, but we've had agents of all types um, from, you know, 
most established to most nitty to what have you, um, bringing all kinds of things to us. And um, so some things have come to John from his connections. Some things have come to us and we pass them to John as the best reader um, for them. And um, and we have other fiction editors in house who are naturally also doing things that have some of these elements. I was actually in Seattle two weeks ago and um, I had a hour and a half or so to spare. So I went to the Amazon bookstore, the new one in University Village and was wandering around and, and taking photographs and getting a sense of it and really enjoying the process of discovery they've set up there. But and and it's a small store and they have relatively few books per square foot because everything is face out as you may have read. And um but they did have a science fiction fantasy bookcase of maybe five shelves. So I went over to look and it had some you know, predictable genre things. And then it had one of our books edited by one of our in-house literary editors, uh, Samantha Hunt's Mr. Splitfoot, which most bookstores would never put in that section um, because they think it's, it's a literary, you know, women's blah, 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 but it has a ghost, it has a ghost story. And, and I thought it was genius of them to put it there because it's not like only one kind of reader goes to that section and all the other readers go to the, the, you know, the rest of the fiction, everyone mixes and blends. And mm. the point of the story they're trying to set up is to have people have unexpected discoveries. And um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I think if I were, you know, managing a very large store uh, after the initial period of new new fiction on a front table and are trying to figure out where to put some of these things, it would start to get hard in some cases um, if I have to keep these rigid categories going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the more the more I think about the the different bookstore categories, sometimes the more I, I sort of get frustrated with like, you know, like I understand like the way the system is currently set up. It's like uh, what our hope is, is, is to find like this great book that has that mainstream crossover appeal. And so like maybe like it, like to me, like I would obviously call it a fantasy or science fiction novel. But then, you know, it's like, oh, well, no, but we can push we can push this out of this mainstream. And so then in the bookstore, it gets shelved in like the regular fiction section instead of in the science fiction fantasy section. Um, and I and I just I keep thinking it's like, ah, oh, it's like that's really backwards. You know, it's like it really should be like what should happen is that the, the bookstore should really expand the genre section and, and allow things like Station Eleven or, you know, The Road and, and these other sort of mainstream but obviously science fiction um uh novels live in the actual science fiction section because uh, you know and, and i mean as as the as the genre sort of becomes more popular and becomes more mainstream i think like maybe we could see some of that happening but um but yeah like right now it's like i, I have this i have this uh, inner struggle where i'm like oh well yes obviously i i would love i would love for the books that i find to be able to you know get on the you know, in the big boy section, um, as opposed to in, in the, in the genre section where they're going to get less attention. But on the other hand, it's like, Oh, but, but that's, that's causing part of the problem. You know, it's like, it's keeping up the boundaries where it's like, well, no, it's obviously a science fiction book, put it in the science fiction section. Um, you know, cause if we did that, like if we had, if we put things like the road in the science fiction section, then, then the people who would go looking for that type of book would find these other things that maybe they'd be interested in. Um, but they're afraid to, to go in the section cause they don't know what to expect from it. You know, cause they, they think they have these misconceptions about what it is. Um, but I mean, one of the, one of the fun things I always find though, like just as I continue to, progress in my career is to find is I keep finding all these secret nerds uh that are just out hmm. there that like you know uh uh you know they they've gone they've gone their whole career built this literary career and it turns out actually no they're just a huge nerd and and probably what they always wanted to write was science fiction and fantasy um one discovery recently was uh Jamie Ford who's uh a major literary writer and he um 
I didn't know he had any interest in genre stuff, but then when I was doing the Apocalypse Triptych with you, Howie, um, uh, he had invited, uh, and they have the same agent, and so he invited Jamie Ford to write something, and it's like, oh, turns out, like, yeah, he's totally a huge nerd. Um, uh, you know, I followed him on Twitter, and so, like, he's always tweeting about, like, Harlan Ellison, and, like, he has this amazing shrine to comic books at his house, you know, um, that he took a picture of one time, and um, so it's just it's just so fun to, to find all these people who, like, you know, they, they really are, you know, just at heart a, a huge nerd, uh, and I'm glad that, you know, the, the boundaries are coming down so that more of those people will be comfortable, um, you know, experimenting and writing that kind of thing instead of just sticking with the, the, the literary stuff that, that, you know, they built their name on. Yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of curious, Bruce, in your years in publishing, did you encounter any noteworthy examples of people being hostile to publishing fantasy and science fiction? Uh, no, I would not say hostile. I, I think um, when I was first in publishing, it, it was pretty much relegated to science fiction and fantasy imprints. And um, But now, um, you know, we've... we've looked at various things, including when we brought the Philip K. Dick catalog here. What we found is that, as which is true with almost every kind of book we publish, nonfiction and fiction alike, there are a bunch of in-house fans for whatever it is. So there are plenty of people that will never read a Philip K. Dick novel who work here, but then there are plenty of people that love him. And hmm. when we had the chance to bring the entire catalog over, they got really into it. And, um, and it's been a big success for us because he keeps having you know, posthumously keeps having these uh, drama tie-ins, including most recently Man in High Castle uh, from Amazon Studios. So um, everyone sees there's a big audience. Everyone sees that we can publish successfully to it. And whether they want to read the books themselves um, becomes beside the point. And, and, you know, you can look at any of our nonfiction um, and the rest of our fiction and say the same thing. I mean, we publish a line of sports books. Some people love to read them. Some people here don't care at all about sports. So, um, I think the days in which any publisher said, well, you never do X are, are fading. I mean, we certainly do like to think of ourselves as having a quality standard in whatever particular genre it is. Um, and what quality means is very different for a cookbook, obviously, than for any novel. But, you know, we would not want to say, oh, we're publishing crap because it works. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, we don't want to do a sort of self-publishing line here. Um, and we'd much rather have John curate a line, but, uh, but the idea that one kind of line is inappropriate. I mean, I, I guess I would say, well, we're not doing romance and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. So I suppose there are still some things that, um, don't quite fit the DNA, but no, there was no resistance at all to this. I mean, it seems like the there's there's kind of been a spreading out of what's acceptable. And, you know, you kind of started out with the dystopian stuff was sort of the first thing to make inroads into respectability. And it's expanded out from there. And I feel like stuff that's set in the far future and in deep space still mm -hmm. has the most resistance to it, like like an Alistair Reynolds book or something. I feel mm -hmm. like no matter how good it is, uh, I, don't, I still don't know if those walls have totally come down. Um, I don't know, but John, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of impression I get, uh, too. Um, I haven't actually tried to acquire anything like that yet. I haven't found anything like that that I wanted to acquire. So I haven't, I haven't actually run that through the, the, 
you know, the gauntlet yet to see, uh, you know, because when you, I mean, and Bruce could probably talk about this more than I can in terms of the process, but I mean, basically how it works is that, you know, I'm looking for the books to find, uh, to publish, and uh, I read them, and then I decide do I want to acquire this? And then I submit it to, to Bruce and HMH and then other people at the company read it and weigh in and like marketing and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, even though it's my imprint, uh, you know, a book has to go through the the gauntlet and, and, you know, get approvals from everyone. And although I think probably mainly, mainly Bruce has to say yes, but, um, it'll, it'll be, it'll be interesting each, each time I find like a, a, a different type of book, it'll be interesting to see like what kind of reactions uh, happen um, at the company because, you know, I mean, I don't even know who most of the other people are um, really. I mean, except in terms of like, maybe I heard their name once or something, you know? So um, it's, it's a, it's just kind of an experiment, but I mean, yeah, that has occurred to me that like, Oh, like uh, how, how are, how are people going to react? It's like, well, it's, it's gone fine so far, but what, if, <laughs> what, what happens when I find like that, that, that really out there thing? Well, on deep space, um, uh, Deacon Twenty Three should count, right? And oh, that sure, is. yeah, that's true. Um, but I guess I would say that um, there are titles that John might bring that are, you know, more kind of straight genre as opposed to trying, you know, crossing genres or, or you know, um, where the marketing challenges are are simple in the straight genre and they're more complicated perhaps more interesting, but complicated for the crossovers. And if there's a straight genre that's, you know, that we don't have to overspend for what a straight genre book is likely to sell, um, we're going to give John a lot of latitude. And and we know that the publishing equation is fairly straightforward because the fans are in certain places. The crossovers are the ones that we need, you know, more people to be sort of getting it, knowing how to market it, um, knowing how to sell it. Um, and, so in a way, I think if John brought a deep space straight genre and it wasn't going to cost his fortune, we'd probably be like, okay, fine, we trust you. Uh, whereas <laughs> if there was some kind of, you know, another Station Eleven type situation where um, it it costs more, the publishing equation is more complicated, the upside is bigger, probably, but um, but it takes the team. Um, that's where he'd be testing our institutional mm-hmm. DNA, I think. I mean, when you're putting out these these new books and this new imprint, do you think about print versus electronic versus audio versus hardcover, all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Um, and, and we do not have our own audio uh, division and distribution. So um, we, we do that by licensing with partners. But um, we're constantly looking at each submission as, is this hardcover ebook? Is it paperback and ebook? Um, we're very unlikely to do e original. Um, and plenty of publishers have experimented with it and, and are doing it. But, um, if the, you know, the ebook market is somewhat bifurcated, um, into a world where there's a whole lot of very low price indie published, self published, et cetera, um, that don't get outside publishing attention. They might get online you know, buzz, um, if, if things are lucky, um, and it's a massive world and there's a whole lot of readers dipping in and out and trying stuff. But, uh, our comparative advantage is getting attention is a book that can get attention. Um, and therefore can, you know, power a, if at least a nine ninety nine paperback, hopefully, uh, a more expensive hardcover, uh, with an ebook and the ratio of ebook to print sales for, 
in general, over science experiments is very, very high. So um, it's not like we're expecting to sell more of the print, but um, but still, are, we succeed when we can get marketing and publicity attention, and therefore booksellers can move some copies um, on top of what we can sell in ebook. Huh. I mean, you mentioned Bruce going into the Amazon, the new brick and mortar Amazon bookstore. I'm just curious, kind of, what's your overall take on Amazon and the Amazon brick and mortar bookstore? I really liked it. I was impressed by it, um, and I and they're still tweaking it. Um, I'm, you know, it's it's quite public now that they're opening one in La Jolla, and and I'm sure they will open others. Um, and how many and how long it takes um, to open many others is no one really knows. But um, it was. The, the the one store in Seattle, it was uh, the opposite of the website experience in, in, in an interesting way. I mean, on the website, you know they have absolutely everything, um, but you pretty much have to find a way to find it yourself. Um, the store, not very large, and their decision to have everything face out with a, a shelf talker, you know, one of those little card, cards underneath with some kind of information, quote, what have you about the book, um, meant that fewer books per square foot in an already fairly small store. So you walk in knowing, well, if you're walking there to get one particular thing, the odds are really high they won't have it. It's, you know, you're much more likely to find that in the big Barnes and Noble. But um, but they had done a very nice job of curating and, and I know they're still playing with it. Um, so they they have one rule that every book there has to have a rating of at least four out of five stars, I think it is, um, in their customer comments. Um, and that means that any kind of controversial book where you get five, five and one stars, forget it. Um, but they also had done a lot of their own curation where they had made subsections that were sort of interesting and surprising. Um, they had put like I mentioned the Mr. Splitfoot example, they'd put titles in sections you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, so the effect was like the opposite of the website. The effect was if I don't know what to buy, but I live near here and I wander in, I'm probably going to find something I didn't expect. Um, so I thought it was great. Um, of course, if they open hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, um, it's likely to do a lot of damage to com- you know competing chains and, mm-hmm. As an ecosystem, I'd be very worried about that uh, for the industry. But I went from there after doing some other stuff in the city to the airport, and there was a Hudson in the um, terminal that I was in. And it was not quite as big as the Amazon store, but sort of similar. And it's a typical Hudson. So they had very obvious big bestsellers, and then they had a whole bunch of books that um, you know were sort of spying out. They had no shelf talkers. And... If I hadn't been in the Amazon store, I would have thought, oh, great, here's a perfectly nice airport bookstore. And instead, I thought, oh, boy, I'd rather have the Amazon store be here. Um, and, and of course, in the Amazon store, if you see something and you're in the showroom, as the term is, and you decide you're going to order it to be shipped to your home or download it on your Kindle, they're perfectly happy. Um, so they're encouraging that. Um, and in Hudson, that's a mortal business threat if you do that when you're in the Hudson store. So... I can see this working very well. Wow. Okay, so John, why don't you give us a rundown of what the different John Joseph Adams books that are coming out are? Uh, well, uh, as Bruce mentioned, the first three we launched with uh, were three Hugh, Hugh Howey novels. So there's Beacon 23 and then Shift and Dust. Uh, Shift and Dust are the volumes two and three of uh, 
Hughes uh, Silo series, which follows Wool. Um, and so Beacon 23 came out in February, and then um, Shift and Dust uh, came out this past week. Um, and um, so so those are the ones that we're publishing this year. And then probably, almost certainly, uh, nothing else will come out until early 2017. Um, and so far, the only thing I've acquired is uh, I've acquired a, a new novel by Carrie Vaughn, and uh, it's called Bannerless. It's set in the same world as her story Bannerless that I published in The End Has Come. Um, and it's also set in the same world as her story Amaryllis, which uh, was in the first issue of Lightspeed and was nominated for a Hugo. So it's kind of cool that it's like the the first original acquisition I make for the line is also something that was in the first issue of Lightspeed. Um but uh, it's a post-apocalyptic novel, and it's uh, it's basically like a it's a post- basically a post-apocalyptic mystery, um, and so it's about an investigator uh, who um, has to you know investigate this mysterious death, um, and uh, the the world is uh, uh, set in a, a sort of post-environmental disaster um, sort of a, a type of apocalypse, um, and so that and and that was a two book deal. Um, so there'll be that book and then hopefully a sequel to that one. Um, and, uh, we'll be publishing it sometime in 2017. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, that's all, that's all we got so far. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, one of the big shocks to the system coming from the short fiction world is that being a book editor is sort of uh, full of um, heartbreak <laughs> because, you know, you get these books submitted to you um, and then sometimes you don't get them. Uh, sometimes they go to auction and you lose the auction to somebody else or whatever. There's various things that can happen that can result in you not getting the book, even though you love it. <laughs> uh, and so it's it's funny because coming from short fiction, that never happens. I mean, almost never happens. Usually short fiction, it's uh, authors sends the story to one editor and that editor has it exclusively until they make a decision about it. Whereas with novels, uh, basically every novel is sent to multiple places. I mean, occasionally you get an exclusive look at something, but um Given that it's it's like that, where it's just this open marketplace, there's often multiple bidders on the same project, um, and so there's any number of things that can go not in your favor to to end up with you not getting the book. Um, so you know, if I had gotten my way every single time, I would have had a couple other books on the list. Let's say that, <laughs> but um, you know, as such as it is, this is the only thing we got so far. But I'm still working on it. Actually, speaking of Hugh Howie, has he managed to avoid getting mugged since we? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, as far as I know, he hasn't gotten mugged since then. Um, although he hasn't, he doesn't seem like he's uh, uh, taken security too seriously. Uh, even though he got mugged, um, you know, running around half naked on his yacht, you know, in the Caribbean, you know, just taking pictures of himself at, at any given moment uh, with barely any clothes on. You know, he's cool. Uh, he's 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 having a good time. <laughs> Um, yeah, all right. And so, uh, okay, so last question for you, John. Are you intending to utterly crush and destroy Joe Monty's saga line? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Um, yeah, it is It is actually kind of funny and a little bit awkward because uh, uh, Joe Monty was my agent and then now he's an editor at Saga Books. And, um, uh, and you know, we we parted amicably as agent and author, or in my case, editor, but uh, because he literally re- left agenting to go be an editor, um, and of course, he's my editor for some anthologies now. Um, so, uh, so it's a little awkward that now basically I'm competing with him directly. And so, like, I had lunch with him when I was in New York um, in November, um, and there was, uh, and we're and we're talking pretty freely about things, you know, because it's like you know we're friends and everything. But then there was one moment where it kind of got 
weird, and so we both just didn't say anything because I think we were both looking at the same book, and it turned out we were. <laughs> and then neither of us got it, so whatever. Uh, John, I think you each, you each need three hats just so you can yeah, have a lunch, yeah, yeah. and then and then no, when you put one hat on, you got to stop talking. I know it's it's weird because uh, you know yeah, I do have all these hats, and and so some sometimes it's actually awkward for me because I, uh, um, you know if I'm talking to somebody about one thing, it's like, I really want to talk to them about something else as well, but I got to separate it so that it's not like mixing everything all together. And, and like, also I have to think about like when I'm asking somebody for, for a short story or something, it's like, well, you know, I don't want to spend, uh, maybe I don't want to spend that sort of, uh, you know, capital or whatever uh, to, to get, to get a short story. Whereas maybe what I really need is a blurb from them for some book that I'm going to edit, you know? Um, so it's like, it, it may, it's making everything more confusing and, and um, you know, sort of uh overlapping uh, overlapping interests but um but yeah no i'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not i'm probably not going to destroy joe i mean probably not <laughs> at least not on purpose i I'll, I'll you know he can stick around <laughs> okay so unfortunately we're all out of time uh so bruce do you have any just final words or just anything else you want to mention um no i, I want to thank you for this and and um i should say on the air to John directly that every editor has so many heartbreaks that um, so far your ratio of hits to heartbreaks is actually pretty good. So um, <laughs> if we keep going together, I'm sure we'll have a lot of books uh, in uh, next year and the year after. All right, great. So, uh, so we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams and Bruce Nichols. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams and Bruce Nichols for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Wendelton in Sweden, who writes, Essential Geekery. This is by far my favorite podcast. Among the many excellent guests are outstanding big names like George R. R. Martin, Atwood, Le Guin, Ishiguro, etc. And the hosts are well-informed, ask diverse and interesting questions, and are great at giving their guests the space to talk. Besides interviews, there are discussions and panels about all things geek, like a new SF movie or an interesting theme in books. Highly recommend it to anyone who is even a little geeky. So big thanks again to Wendelton for that great review. Special thanks as well to Barbara Murphy, who just signed up this week to give us $2 per episode on Patreon. Barbara also just used our PayPal donation button to send us $2 for each of our previous 194 episodes. So a huge, huge thank you to Barbara Murphy for making such a generous contribution to the show. If anyone else out there wants to follow Barbara's example, which would be really pretty amazing, you can sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks, and you can also send us a lump sum for whatever you think the episodes you've already listened to were worth over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And of course, I'd like to give a big thank you to everyone out there who's already taken the time to contribute to Geeks Guide to the Galaxy. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, Tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.